0: Welcome to the Lehigh at Nasdaq Center podcast. In this series, Disruptive Engineers, we'll be hosting conversations with industry leaders who are working on cutting edge technologies in quantum computing, cybersecurity, green technology, artificial intelligence, and more. I'm your host, Samantha Walravens. Today, I'm sitting down with Louis Dusan, the founder, CTO, and president of AI Inc. to discuss his work on autonomous vehicles and robotic vision to make next generation transportation a reality. So I wanted to start this talk today by delving into your background. You have a pretty incredible professional career. Prior to founding AI in 2013, you worked for NASA in its deep space network, which communicates with planetary and deep space probes. And you also worked at Lockheed Martin, developing cameras used in fighter jets. So pretty cool background. Can you tell us a little bit about your career in aerospace and defense? And how does this translate into what you're doing today at AI?
1: Well, that's a big question. I think, you know, my career started by, obviously, when I graduated college the the first time. And I really wanted to do things that were fun in engineering. And I still, to this day, believe that out of all the choices that I was you know, lucky to have, uh, working in aerospace defense is one of the most fulfilling engineering roles that you could have. So that's number one. Number two, you know, working with cutting edge technology, a lot of which is typically classified early on, working with DARPA. You get to see a lot of things early on before, in general, the general public might get to see. So you get early look at the technologies that are coming out. And obviously, you get exposed to a lot of problems that you don't normally see in, I would say, commercial environments. For example, outside of autonomous driving, the perception algorithms required to really do the things that we're looking for today in autonomous navigation really started out in aerospace and defense in things like remote sensing, remote piloting, missiles and fire control, information surveillance, reconnaissance, those kinds of things. And so, I mean, just from those things that i that I've said, you can see that it prepares you well. You get to see a lot of the things, and for me, it was kind of a a, a very simple, I would say, transition into the perception world, which I am in now. And I think I brought a lot to the table that I may not have had I come from a different background.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your work at Lockheed Martin? Is it all still classified? I'm just no. curious about your you know what you're doing in the missiles and fire control division. And with you know missile targeting systems.
1: Sure. Yes. Um, well, I think the the probably the most well-known system is the advanced targeting pod, which was called the sniper pod. And it is found in all of the allied jets, the US and its allies, and it is a, a pretty sophisticated system which has several cameras, several lasers, several processing components. And I think if you're a material science person, you would enjoy this. All of these systems are looking down a single aperture. So if you look at, for example, what it takes to, to be able to say bore a camera, LIDAR, different versions of cameras, the things that are in the visible, things that are in the not visible spectrum, different wavelengths of laser, those are different materials. And so uh, being able to do it down a single aperture so that they're all bore and all looking at the same thing, is a material science sort of uh, clinic. And that's one of the exciting things about it. Nobody else was doing that. And, you know, along with that sort of material science challenges, all the challenges associated with the things that you know now, we all know now is perception, which is what am I looking at? Where is it? And, and then what actions do I need to take?
0: So you said that you're creating a technology, IDAR, which is actually better than LIDAR. So explain to us those terms. LIDAR stands for light detection and ranging, and then IDAR Mm -hmm. is intelligent detection and ranging. Explain to us what those terms mean.
1: Well, everybody's familiar with LIDAR. The original terms were LIDAR and LIDAR, laser detection and ranging, light detection and ranging. There's a whole argument about which one's right, which one's wrong. We're not going to get into that. But intelligent detection and ranging was a way for us to explain to people, hey, it's not just about LIDAR. It's not just about cameras. It's not just about radars. It's about an intelligent way of trying to achieve perception. And so that's why we coined intelligent detection and range.
0: And why is it better? What's the intelligence that's involved beyond what we have in, with LiDAR?
1: Sure, well, for one, um, it uses multiple modalities. So it's not just LiDAR, it's the LiDAR and a camera. And uh, of course we can do single or multiple modalities. Uh, But the other thing is the way we actually interrogate the world with a LIDAR, for example, is most companies will just use, let's say, a fixed pattern that just interrogates the world over and over in the same way. With intelligent detection and ranging, we can not only do that, but we can change the way we interrogate the environment by, for example, the easiest way to think about it is changing the pattern, right? Maybe you want to make the pattern narrower, skinnier. Maybe you want to concentrate with high resolution in the middle. Maybe you want to track a specific target and put high resolution on that target. There's lots of different ways that you can do it, but it starts out with an agile scanning system, which really, we were the first to really develop this agile scanning system. And the agile scanning system, which is another term might be a light engine, it allows you to process all the different things you want to do very quickly. So, what we joke, I used to joke, we, we could write Mickey Mouse uh, on the side of the road with a laser, we could paint a horse running. And we actually have video of of, you know, an animation with the with the sensor that we could do with a laser. Right. And that just shows you the agility. So it's not a fixed pattern all the time and it can react to different things that may come up.
0: So how does this technology differ from what Tesla is doing, and how they're censoring and and viewing the, the surrounding environment in their autonomous vehicles?
1: Yeah, we chatted about this earlier. Tesla is using camera radar technology to do what they're doing. They're not the only ones. Mobileye initially started out doing a similar thing uh, with camera and adding radar later. And now I believe they're adding LiDAR. So this idea of camera radar is using two established technologies uh, to do the primary sensing of the environment. And so the difference between, I think, what a Tesla is doing what the rest of the world uh, is doing is, is sort of using this alternative sensing modality, which is obviously you guys know it's LIDAR, and incorporating it into what they do. So most people that use LIDAR will also use something that is called map-based localization, or the idea that you have an onboard system, onboard information, prior information about the roads you're traveling in, and you cross-correlate that with the information that you pick up. And so, for example, companies like GM with Super Cruise have been able to successfully show that system works very well. And for example, something like a highway assist. Tesla, on the other hand, tries to do something called simultaneous localization and mapping, which is really very little prior knowledge about the environment. They try to ad hoc develop their pose, position, trajectory on the fly using just the camera and radar. So that's the primary difference.
0: So you probably have heard about the tragic accident this past weekend in which two people were killed in a 2019 Tesla, I believe it was, and there's still a lot of unanswered questions about whether it was user error or technology error that caused the crash, and Elon Musk was quick to respond that the autopilot was not turned on when the crash occurred, but what we do know is that no one was in the driver's seat when the crash occurred. So what is your reaction to this, and what does this tell us about the viability and the safety of self-driving cars?
1: Well, I know as much as you know about that accident. Um, I don't know anything more than what you've heard. And so I, I can't speak to that. But I can't speak to the previous accidents that have that have occurred. You may know that I wrote a Medium article several years ago, sort of trying to explain kind of in a polite way to Elon that, hey, you know, you kind of need to change some of the things you're doing because it, is, it isn't really working. As a fan of what Elon does with SpaceX and what he's done previous. I'm, I'm kind of disappointed in some of the accidents that occur, mostly because it's accidents that occur from the overconfidence of the technology by the customers or the people that are driving those vehicles. And I think that's a leading factor to it. You know, Tesla will be quick to point out that the number of accidents per mile of driven for the vehicle is less than the average vehicle in the world. And certainly that's that's a significant thing, but it also could be less than the average, I would say, accident that Tesla has, if they would be a little bit more careful about how they represent that driving system. And In some countries, he's not allowed to say highway autopilot, but only assisted. So I think that's part of it. And in that sort of vein, some of the accidents that have occurred really do occur because, in my belief, it is an overconfidence of the driver Not understanding how the modalities work, the holes in a camera and a LIDAR combination are pretty big. And you have to understand where those holes occur and why before you can get an intuition about whether something is going to work or not. The general public does not have that. And so they can only rely on the information from the people they trust. People place their trust on other people in general for things they don't understand. And I think that's part of the issue.
0: Is You know, as part of it, also just the PR, the marketing that, you know, we could talk about autonomous vehicles, but they're really not autonomous, are they?
1: Well, I mean, that's a, uh, are you referring specifically to Tesla or are you referring to general Tesla, autonomous
0: vehicles? Well, just in general, I mean, self-driving cars, there are no such, there's no such thing as a self-driving car at this point in time. So is this a misnomer when we talk about self-driving vehicles or there still a need for a human in the car?
1: I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think what's inside most people's head is I buy a car from the dealership and the car can just drive by itself and I never have to do That That's what I think most people's understanding of a self-driving car is or what most people want. So no argument there. But there are autonomous buses, low speed, albeit, and very closed environments where, you know, you can't go outside of those uh, situations. There are GM Super Cruise is a really great autopilot system. I encourage everybody to try it if they haven't. Not that, you know, uh, I have one myself or or I'm getting any, any benefit of it, but I do understand what they're doing. and I think it's not only responsible, but I think it is a great way to do a first version of a truly highway sort of assisted driving system. And, and so you're not getting autonomy, full spectrum, door to door. You don't have to worry about it, movies, those types of things. No, you're not there. But I think in some situations, you're approximating it. And I think, you know, we can talk about this later, but I think throughout the rest of the several coming years, you're going to see that steady uptick in specific capabilities, because at the end of the day, engineers have to solve specific problems. And as they solve specific problems, those become features in every self-driving car.
0: So when do you see self-driving cars, autonomous vehicles actually out there on the road in in regular use?
1: And you're talking about the car where you tell it where to go and you don't have it to do anything. Right? And you're right. like,
0: you know, reading your book or painting your fingernails.
1: Or... <laughs> I think that reality is probably a lot further away than we we want to admit. But let me just say this. I don't know how important that actually is because what will happen is when you bought your cars 10 years ago, there was no such thing as CarPlay and Android R, right. And now we've kind of taken it for granted and we're like, hey, that's great. Yeah. yeah. And move on. What's the next thing? And you don't notice what a big impact that's what it had. You don't really notice what a big impact GPS had on your life until, you know, unless it's the day of. I think what will happen is it will be a slow, steady drip of new features in vehicles. And then before you know it, you know, one person will say, Ah, oh, this car does everything I want it to do automatically. And then one person will be, "I oh, you can't drive in the snow going up to Tahoe by itself. So therefore, it's not self-driving. I think that's the way it's going to progress.
0: My question for you is, why did you start your own company rather than innovating within the walls of a NASA or a Lockheed Martin?
1: Well, I, I don't want to say that I didn't innovate. I think I innovated at Lockheed. I innovated at, at North of Grumman. Uh, but I think your real question is, You know, why wouldn't you do what I'm doing right now, per se, through one of those companies? I'm not saying you can't, but you know, it's very difficult, I would say, to try to do something like that through a company that's established. Maybe you don't have the same goals. You know, it's very difficult for a company to support something like that unless it's part of their roadmap and they're setting it up. And it's not to say you couldn't do that, but I think it's just easier to make a clean break and, and try to sort of do something else. That's really the reason I think you don't see that too much. You know, I say that, but companies like Texas Instruments spun out companies all the time and they had a model for it. And I think it's it's something to look at. Uh, the alternative would have been those people would leave and do, maybe do something else.
0: Was some, was uh, working on autonomous vehicle technology something that had been in the back of your mind when you were at those larger organizations?
1: For sure. I think I was inspired by people who came before me in, in for example, the DARPA Grand Challenge, for those of you who are not maybe not familiar with it, 2007, 2008 timeframe, both Stanford and Carnegie Mellon sort of Uh, We're always competing with each other and and they sort of won year one, one year two. This idea of creating a car that could drive by itself through an unstructured environment and one that was an urban environment. And a lot of technology went in through that. And I got a chance to see that technology while I was working at Lockheed. And the way that happened, um, I think opened my eyes a lot into what could be done better. And I think that was the first time I really thought that I could contribute from what I knew just in my career and the things that I studied.
0: Your degree is in electrical engineering, computer science, and then you're getting a PhD in computational physics. So what are the skills and educational background that you're looking for at AI? What are the skills and experiences and the educational background that's necessary to do what you're doing?
1: We like people that have diverse backgrounds. It's it's Lido is very much a systems engineering problem. You look at the system from a bird's eye view. You've got you know mechanical, optical design. You have optomechanical design. You have optoelectronic design, electronic design. You have software. You have algorithms. You have thermal. Uh, it's a, it's very much a system, right? And so I think we look for not just specialists, and certainly there are specialists in the company, but we do like uh, people who have a broad background. In different engineering disciplines, but they have one that they really truly are, you know, very strong in. I would say, we mentioned my my background, the PhD that I didn't get because I started this company. But before that, I had two masters: one in optics and photonics, and one in quantum optics. And then a master's that I didn't finish just because I got I didn't really like communications engineering was from uh, during my time at USC. One of the things I did like to do was study in detail different related fields. And I believe that message has always resonated with me, which is a PhD is great if you want to specialize in something. And I certainly would still recommend people do that if they want. To. But in my opinion, um, and I don't want to you know unduly take anybody off track with a PhD, that's not my, my goal, is I think studying different masters is also very, very good. Bell Labs, at one point, when they introduced new engineers, you may know this, they asked engineers to come in and then take other disciplines to cross train them. And the innovation really comes in the middle or in the meeting point between one discipline and say another discipline. And I think today that is very much true.
0: Well, it's interesting. Speaking of innovation and how this is working today, we, when you look at this new batch of students graduating, the new employees, it's almost as if the companies need to play a bigger role in educating sort of these next generation engineers because these students here are like picking—they're picking what they want to major in when they're you know 19, 20 years old. And that may not necessarily translate to what the companies are looking for. So do you have any response on on how companies are actually helping to sort of develop and educate these next generation engineers?
1: Well, you know, I mean, besides the obvious things such as internships, um, you know, and sort of getting younger students and graduate students exposed to real world problems, you know, I think there is a lot of work, larger companies in general. I don't know if startups have the bandwidth or the ability, the wherewithal to do some of that. But larger companies, I know that NASA, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, I was more than encouraged to take extra extra classes. And they were financially able to almost pay, pretty much pay for everything for me. Um, and I took advantage of that. So, I mean, your academic career, if you're a serious engineer, shouldn't end after you get your bachelor's. You should have an attitude that you want to continuously learn and do different things. And if you do that, I promise you that your career will be different than I think a a typical career would be where you sort of do your bachelor's and then you stop. And if you can mix, let's say your master's with real world experience at a company, that is a powerful fusion of experiences.
0: Let's talk a little more about your company and starting the company. What What are some of the biggest obstacles, challenges you've faced in your journey with AI over the past few years?
1: Well, I mean, if you wait another day, you know that might trump the last one. But um, <laughs> I mean, there's many, many. You know, I, I often say that a startup is like a roller coaster. You oftentimes get really excited about the highs, and you really get low about the low. And if you become, you know, if you manage to stay into a startup longer than a year or so. You start kind of putting a low-pass filter on it so that you you don't get really excited about the highs or get really low about the lows and you just kind of continue plotting along. You know, having said that, I think always one of the biggest challenges is going to be dealing with external market environments that have nothing to do with your technology, have nothing to do with your team. And you just now have been thrown this thing, this obstacle, and you must deal with it. And so I think that's one of them. Obviously, fundraising is one, and that's always challenging because it really means you're taken out of what you want to do especially if you're an engineer and you're now you're going to go out in front and show people your dream, show people in the investment world why they're going to make money off of this or why this is going to change the world or why this matters or why somebody else is not going to be able to do what you do and why you're going to be successful. And that's that's a lot of emotional energy that you have to take with you. It can be challenging to not take it personally, especially as an engineer. And and so I think those two challenges, external market conditions you have no control over, and I think the challenges of fundraising are two of the biggest challenges that I think you overcome by having a good team around you, which I think happens when you understand what you're good at and what you're not good at and how can you build a team around you that will support you such that you will be good at whatever gets thrown your way.
0: And how do you build that team? How do you find those people who complement your skills and add to the skill set that's necessary to to run a startup?
1: Yeah, it's not easy, right? You look for them hard. You know, for me, let's take Blair, for example, the current CEO of AI, when I first met him, you know, he was uh, an advisor on the board and I got obviously a chance to develop rapport with him. And get to know him a lot better, and then obviously he he became my chief of staff, and then eventually when we decided as a as a team that it was time to go go through the the process we're going now with this back merger, you know I made the decision, and obviously Blair was very much involved in it that we wanted to switch roles: president, CEO, CEO, president, and and now CTO, so that I could concentrate a lot more on the vision, the technical vision of the company, and he could concentrate a lot more on the things that he was really good at. And I didn't necessarily have to be there. So that was a long way of saying you, I think you need to vet them over time and learn to develop trust with people. There is a method to it. Yeah, I think it takes time. I don't think you're going to do that in a day.
0: So your CEO gave me this great t-shirt. It's an AI t-shirt and with your motto on it, which says Semper Vigilantes. What does that mean? Tell me.
1: I mean, I think to us is just, you know, we always have to be aware of what's going on in general for as a team. You know, it also has maybe a hidden meaning of the way we 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 sort of approach the search acquisition track, which is, you know, we do our search, then there's an acquisition process and there's a tracking process, but we're always aware of our environment. So, I mean, I, I think it has multiple meanings. Blair loves to talk about that. Cool. We also have these uh, challenge coins. That that we give out our team and sort of our close business contacts and friends and partners, and I think it reminds them, you know, if you attach good feelings to, for example, something like this, or it, it reminds people uh, when they look at it of the fun times that you you're having during this special thing that is a startup and a start and a, and a venture.
0: I wanted to ask you a couple other pieces of advice for our students today there's been discussion about, you know, future, their future careers, whether they should start at big companies or small companies right out of college. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think there's a right answer. I think it depends on you. It depends on the situation you're in, the kind of engineer you are. Biomedical engineers and let's say electrical, optical, mechanical uh, system level engineers may have different paths and, and I can't speak to everybody. I can only speak to what I did, which is, I was very adamant that I wanted to go into a large company in aerospace and defense and work and learn from top engineers around the world and learn the things you don't learn in school, which is practical application, real world problems, manufacturability, uh, design cycles, things that I could get that I'm not gonna just pick up at school. Cause you can't, it's hard to, it's not something that's easily picked up in, in a school environment. But in the, in between, like say, for example, NASA and Lockheed, there was a startup, uh, Q Plus Networks, where I wasn't a founder of the company, but I was one of the first people to join that company. And the thing that happened there that was, I think, key to the rest of my career was I was shifted from doing deep space communication at NASA to doing optical communications. And what I did to prepare for it is I went and took classes. I still remember this. I went to UCLA to take classes on optical communication and I learned it and I loved it. And I stretched myself in a way that I maybe didn't think at that time I could, because I hadn't really studied that aspect of engineering. And I realized that I could do it in a short time, pick it up and be really productive. Then when I went to Lockheed, I was sort of thrust into a role where I had to sort of help this team Bring this product to market and exercise me in a completely different way. And I was successful because I put time and effort into it. And so what I loved about those experiences was that I wasn't doing the same thing over and over. And I challenge, and I I would say that's a piece of advice is don't ever get comfortable with what you're doing. Like challenge yourself, go out and try something new. Don't if you feel comfortable, then you're gonna get bored. Maybe that's just me, but I think I speak for a lot of people when they get too comfortable you're not going to get challenged you're not going to learn and you are going to tend you're going to have a tendency to get bored with what you're doing
0: but then that also brings up I, I and i totally agree that you know that that getting getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and pushing yourself is important to innovation but then there's that you know that underlying fear of failure you know when you're doing something different and new and that you're not 100% on top of it's not your background you know there's that fear that you know you may just totally flop and fall on your face so how do you deal with that kind of fear and how you overcome that
1: Indeed, we're often going to learn the most when we fail so i i think that that is a genuine and respected you know respectable fear but then you're also not going to learn um i think in a way that you could you could learn and and so i think you've got to balance that right but look if you prepare yourself I, I think you're going to be successful in most of the things that you try if you come into something and you just expect to know it without pre- preparation, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. So I would say take the challenges, but also do the work to prepare for what it is that you want to do.
0: Do you see AI expanding into industries outside of autonomous vehicles?
1: Yeah, sure. Like, for example, intelligent transportation systems, they're not necessarily vehicles, but there are these monitoring posts um, all over the United States or another in any other country that monitor traffic. Uh, retail often likes to do um, you know, head counting and, and occurrences where customer service touches the or interacts with the customer. So um, there's lots of different environments where things like LIDAR uh, and in general remote sensing are going to, I think, to be outside of what we would call vehicles.
0: Right, Louis. Thank you so much for this amazing interview. Thank you for joining the Lehigh NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to NASDAQCenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram. We are at Lehigh NASDAQ Center. If you enjoyed today's conversation, with louie make sure to subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you find your favorite podcast content tune in next week to hear my conversation with shauna tellerman the co-founder and ceo of modzi we will discuss her entrepreneurial experience and the innovative impact on the world of interior design